Welcome back, listeners. We're on the road this week in Lexington, Kentucky, to talk with Dwight Billings. Dwight is an emeritus professor of sociology at the University of Kentucky, where he has spent his career researching social inequality and poverty, especially in Appalachia. His research has appeared in many of the top journals in sociology, and he has served as the editor of the Journal of Appalachian Studies. He has also published several books, including Planters and the Making of a New South, and, with Kathleen Blee, The Road to Poverty, The Making of Wealth and Hardship in Appalachia. He also co-edited Back Talk from an American Region, Confronting Appalachian Stereotypes, and Appalachia in the Making, The Mountain South in the 19th Century. With Anne Kingsolver, he also edited Appalachia in Regional Context, Place Matters, an edited collection featuring an essay with our own Gina Kaysen. Today, we're here to talk with Dwight about the history of coal mining in Southern Appalachia and the region's future. As you'll hear in this episode, the issue of coal mining in Appalachia is very personal for me. Although I didn't grow up in the region, most of my father's family lives in Leslie County, Kentucky, and many of my family members have worked as miners over the years. On December 30, 1970, 38 miners lost their lives in what is now called the Hurricane Creek Mine Disaster. They sealed the mine and created a memorial where the mine once was and dedicated that memorial to the miners. It reads, Miners who gave so much that future generations may benefit with a better life. They sacrificed for their families, labored, and lost their lives. We honor them so they will never be forgotten. We'd like to dedicate this episode to the miners and their families who gave their bodies and souls to fuel our national economy. As a note to our listeners, we recorded this in a building on a busy street near UK's hospital. We tried to reduce the amount of road noise you'll hear in this episode, but there is one rogue siren that appears close to the beginning of our conversation. I'm Kelly Vines, and this is About South. I recently learned that your scholarly interest in Appalachia is rooted in your experience as a child growing up in West Virginia. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience as a child and how it's informed your scholarship about the region? I grew up in Logan County, West Virginia, later moved to Beckley, West Virginia. And when you grow up in those kind of places, especially Logan, you're surrounded by coal. I could see miners going to work just over the hill at our house. You, you drive out in the country and you go through what was sort of pejoratively called coal camps. They were kind of referred to as camps because some of them seemed to be temporary, but people were living in them for generations. Some were very nice on the other hand. Um, you, you would see the environmental harm. Uh, I can remember burning piles of glob, just smoldering and, and the odors of that. We'd go visit my grandmother and I'd see these fiery furnaces where they were making coke, burning all night, and again the odor, and it was almost like the satanic mills or something. So the presence of coal was really big growing up. When I was a student, 
by the time I got to high school, really things were interesting in the region. We had had this downturn in coal mining, the discovery or rediscovery of poverty, the war on poverty gets um, kicked off. And so it was a time of tremendous upheaval, but also of promise, of activism. Um, I can remember seeing old army trucks that had been uh, given to the community action program there in Raleigh County where I grew up. And I was always proud of the sign on the, on the trucks, of the people, by the people, for the people of Raleigh County. And those community action programs were training people to uh, be home health aides, transportation workers. They were helping to keep people out of nursing homes by providing, you know, minimal kind of home health services. And it, these were people often formerly on welfare that were now doing this really meaningful care work. So, I mean, that was that was really, for me, very exciting. That, that whole period ushers in all this activism about poverty, about the environment, the opposition to strip mining, union democracy, tax reform. Thousands of people are really involved in trying to make the place better. And that, that was, for me, very exciting. It made me want to be a sociologist, made me want to learn more about Appalachia. And overall, it contributed to what some people call an Appalachian Renaissance, growing out of all that activism in the 60s and 1970s. Creative outpouring of literature, fiction, stories, poetry. Appalachian Studies gets established. We're taping here at the University of Kentucky Appalachian Center. It was created in 1977 as an expression of all that energy and excitement. It was a really interesting time to be growing up in, in those southern West Virginia coal counties and seeing what was going on and carrying that experience off to graduate school. That's really fascinating. So we're going to spend a lot of this episode talking about the coal industry and what Appalachia looks like now and what coal mining has done to the region. But before we get into that, would you tell us a little bit about what Appalachia looked like before coal? Sure. I think to understand the impacts and the way coal developed, you kind of need to know what the region was like before coal. And if you could use the analogy from the Occupy movement, the 99 and the 1%, the 1% were large landowners that owned slaves, but the 99%, give or take, were ordinary folks making a living through primarily subsistence farming. But it was really home-based economy, based on family labor. This promoted big families. Children are valuable in that kind of a system. They work in the fields with mom and dad and uncle and aunt and grandparents. That creates a problem. <laughs> These large families, over the next generation or two, have to have land. So the farms get subdivided, and they become smaller and smaller each decade. But within 30, 40, 50 years, all that has declined. And people are scratching out a living, pushing further up the hillsides. They start to erode. You've got very small farms. People are in really an agricultural crisis. That sets the condition for the coal industry because you've got a dependent population that needs work. And the thing that attracted 
northern coal operators to come to Appalachia was the factor of abundant cheap labor and, of course, tremendous coal resources. So you put that together and it's really attractive to open up the fields in southern West Virginia. Can you tell us the time frame that we're looking at here? Around 1900 is when, I'd say in the 1880s, the food supply, the calorie content is starting to go down on these farms. 1900 is roughly um, when the industry really gets up and going. It, it takes a while because you've got massive investment in transportation to get into the mountains with the railroads. That, that takes a long time. Prior to that, of course, you had timbering, which also was opening up the, up the area. But roughly 1890s, 1900 is when you get the beginning of the explosion of, of coal mining. So many things change with that. listening who aren't familiar with coal mining in Appalachia, can you give us a brief history of mining in the region and really how it's affected the social and cultural life of everyone living in these coal regions? Sure. Not only, not only the people working in the mines and those families, but the surrounding population. I mean, the first thing you notice is a big growth population, a big expansion in eastern Kentucky, West Virginia. Almost immediately, the impact is on land ownership. I talk about how um, land was getting scarce and small parcels. Suddenly you have people buying up mineral resources, buying up land to develop it. And so that, that creates a further crunch on prospects for making a living. I don't like the analogy, but some people refer to Appalachia as a colony because so much of the land got bought by large national corporations. Much of the surface of West Virginia is absentee-owned to this day. That makes it hard to develop locally when those resources are still in the hands of railroad companies, land companies, coal companies, um, and so on. Community <laughs> obviously changes. People leave the family farm and go to work in these isolated areas where coal is being mined you have to build a town. So you get the company town period. You get the, the paternalism of the coal camps where they, the operators built the schools, built the churches, built the housing. Sometimes that was shoddy and other times they built model camps as they were called where it was called welfare capitalism. Build a good community and maybe people won't organize and join a union. So you provide health services, you provide social work, you provide recreation, swimming pools, even a golf course in some of the eastern Kentucky communities. So, you know, community life really changes. People had no civil rights in these towns. They're very undemocratic. They're run from the top down by the company. Uh, there were laws against gathering together without permission. Again, if people were gathering, they could be talking about the union. So you don't want that. They would hire preachers that were sympathetic to the company and opposed to unionization, schooling the same things. T 
top, some topics were just forbidden. So it's, it's really a total control environment in many ways, and that contributes to an anti-democratic, you know, community culture. Obviously, family life is changing. Men are now the breadwinners. They're not working with their families in the fields. They're going off somewhere to work. So you get this gulf developing among family members, although some, some men really like to take their younger sons into the mines with them as assistants in the early days, the hand-loading era, as it was called. As I said, cheap labor was one of the reasons for moving the industry into Appalachia. And I think this is a worthwhile point that surprises a lot of people. Operators referred to the desirable circumstances of what they called a judicious mixture. They wanted different kinds of people, people that were strange to each other, people that didn't speak the same language or came from different cultural or racial backgrounds. In the northern coal fields, like Pennsylvania, Indiana, Ohio, it was a largely all-white workforce. In the mines of the south, Tennessee and Alabama, the coal mining workforce was almost entirely black, based on convict labor. So that peonage in the cotton south leads many African-American men to be put in prison, then they're leased to coal companies to work in those mines. Appalachia developed in an entirely different way. This notion of the judicious mixture meant that people were brought in from Eastern Europe to work in the mines, African Americans came up from the Deep South to work in the mines, and Appalachians worked in the mines. So these coal companies become a global village. One community, Lynch, had 16 or 17 nationalities, 10,000 people. I mean, these aren't your isolated hillbillies. These are global villages speaking many languages and bringing in religious differences. That was, at first, hard to organize, but they got it together. They needed each other. You couldn't afford racial discrimination underground. Your safety is involved with your buddies. So they came together, formed probably the most militant union in the United States, the United Mine Workers. And there's a book people might be interested in reading called The Black Coal Miner in America. And, and the author, Ron Lewis, a historian in West Virginia, makes the case that this was probably the most racially homogeneous workforce in the country. Homogeneous in the sense of getting along, of identifying with each other, of developing a, a class awareness that they were all in this together. And, and that really helped the, the union cause a great deal. I know in Leslie County, for instance, the census data says that it is currently 95, 98% white. Right, yeah. And I don't know if that's similar. I haven't done the research to see if that is still true in present day I think it across would be. Yeah. most of these current coal, coal mining communities. What happened? A lot of um, African Americans left the region. Um, Clay County, right next door to your Leslie County folks, was about 20% black around the time of the Civil War and a lot of those people leave the region. A lot of the African-American miners and the Eastern European miners in the working in coal also left as the 20th century moved on. There was, of course, despite this racial harmony among miners, 
there was still discrimination against African American miners. They they got the less good jobs. They were the last hired, first fired kind of thing. So you have a big decline of the African American population. But if you look at the census today, it's not at all what it was like back at an earlier period. You bring up the aspect of labor activism in Appalachia as being a largely unified multiracial movement. Can you speak a little more about that? I'm always a little skeptical of the whiteness argument only because it often leaves out the role of those people that were promoting racism. It makes it sound like inherently working class folks are racist as opposed to they were manipulated throughout the South, always reminded that they were better than the African Americans, that they were special and they would be taken care of. So to talk about it as a privilege of whiteness sometimes overlooks that whole history of pitting the races against each other, keeping them divided. Um, divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. I mean, that's been, and that's true throughout the whole American labor movement. It's, but I, I think the, the Appalachian case shows, you know, this can be overcome. This is, this is what labor movements have to be all about, is overcoming those divides that employers would just love to manipulate through that judicious mixture of difference mm -hmm. and diversity. I'm fascinated by the racial composition, but also, you know, this was one of the most insurgent workforces in the United States. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Battle of Blair Mountain. This was um, 10,000 armed miners, led in part by Mother Jones, marched to overthrow the government of Mingo County, West Virginia, right on the Kentucky border, because it was so hostile to unions. Imagine that, 10,000 armed miners marching like troops, commanding railroad trains, boarding the trains, and they, they approached this uh, mountain between Logan, where I grew up, and um, Mingo County. 10,000 miners trying to go over that hill. 3,000 local armed deputies, county citizens, pro-coal supporters on top with guns and machine guns. Eventually had to bring in federal troops to, uh, to stop the, the battle that raged several days on there. Again, a little piece of, of Appalachian labor history that's so important, it's so much in the minds of people in the region, that history of activism, to, un to know their own troops, as they were called. The miners wore red bandanas, and that's why the West Virginia school teachers wore red bandanas last year when they were on strike. The red bandana is a symbol of labor militancy that is deeply rooted in the region. And I was, I'll look at TV and I see them, the teachers put their red bandanas and I say, my golly, it's still, that spirit is still out there. I wore a red bandana tied around my throat, rednecks what a reporter wrote. I wore with honor and respect. Coal mining, especially in the 21st century, is the subject of national attention. We have what has been called Barack Obama's war on coal, to Donald Trump's promise to put coal miners back to work, 
that it's always been this political question. You've also pointed out that Appalachia remains the focus of coal mining and efforts to put the coal miner back to work and conversations about coal, despite the fact that states like Wyoming produce a large amount of coal. And so we're not talking about coal extraction in Wyoming. The national conversation is always centered on West Virginia, on Kentucky, on Tennessee, on Northern Alabama. Why does Appalachia remain at the center of this conversation about coal mining and renewable energy? And what do you think these conversations might misrepresent or misunderstand? Why Appalachia? Well, I think it's the the sheer numbers of employed workers in mining. That number has, of course, dropped tremendously. You know, we used to have something like 830,000 coal miners in the United States. And I don't know what the current number is in East Kentucky right now. Maybe 5,000, 6,000. So it's a small percent of people, of, of the workforce, and yet a profoundly important part in those counties. Good jobs. 80000 $100,000 a year in some cases. There's no other jobs like that out there, uh, unless you're a doctor. <laughs> and so the, the, the numbers, both in the past, and the romanticization of coal mining, the hard-working male breadwinner sacrificing body and lung for the nation. I mean, that can have a real positive spin. If you want to picture coal mining in Wyoming, what are you going to do? Look at, look at deep pits and huge pieces of equipment. We have those in Appalachia with mountaintop removal, but it's the, it's the image of the Appalachian coal miner. That, that has a kind of nostalgia, has a kind of romanticism about it, hard times but hard working, national sacrifice, all that, um, I think makes, makes the image of coal in America and, as you said, the image that Donald Trump played to in terms of we're going to put a lot of miners back to work. As far as misunderstandings, one is, of course, the very diminishing levels of actual mining and, and production. but it gets all cloudy with all the rhetoric of, you mentioned, a war on coal. Um, analysts of the industry, you know, coal economists, totally dispute that. The environmental reforms that the Obama administration wanted to place on clean energy, you know, reform, really never transpired. The Obama administration pushed an alternative, not clean energy, but gas, fracking. Fracking is just as bad in terms of carbon and methane as coal, but it's abundant. And so you get all these pipelines, you get the production of gas in West Virginia especially. There's probably more fracking employees or people subsidiary to the industry, you know, whose jobs are affected by the industry in West Virginia than there are coal miners today. So that was, that was a real misrepresentation. It wasn't a war on coal. So you get these campaigns like Friends of Coal. Some of the people in the mountains are fond of saying, well, it's kind of hard to know how to be a friend of a rock. So, you know, you get these, I see the license plates all over Lexington, Kentucky, Friends of Coal. I'm sure you see it in, in Leslie County. Coal, it keeps the lights on. Keeps the lights on, that's right. As if we couldn't have the lights on with wind or solar or, or other means. So you get this Friends of Coal and Enemies of Coal, and things get really polarized, and... 
So you get disinformation campaigns. Coal industry spent millions of dollars proclaiming clean coal and saying it's not a problem. And, and these really intensified both with the environmental movement, but also when coal is losing its grip. The Friends of Coal is really a legitimation campaign that says, we're still here. We're still what you need. We're still what you're dependent on. We're your friend and we're your employer. And so it's like arguing for the centrality of coal, even as it's being undercut and delegitimized and, and in decline. I guess a kind of insider-outsider perspective that I walk as somebody who has family here but is not necessarily of this place is that I see my cousins who go into the mines at 18 because they promise $100,000 a year in Biden, Kentucky. And by the time they're 29, they look like old men. And so I see these Friends of Coal bumper stickers and I try to merge that with the reality of labor exploitation, especially of young men in this region. And it's really difficult for me to be a friend to be a friend of yeah, coal, right? right? Because I know on the one hand that it provides a lot of the economic stability for my family, right. for their families. But on the other hand, at, it eats them up. It termi- I was just gonna say, at what cost to bodies and lungs and backs and uh, the level of fatalities historically. Black lung has made a big resurgence now in the region because my underground miners are, are mining these thinner seams of coal. So they're getting a lot of rock dust now. I mean, they're, they're grinding into not just the seam of coal, which is dusty in itself, but getting all kinds of other um, particulates in their lungs. And so we've got a crisis of black lung without the federal spending that was once available for you know, um, supporting people that were disabled with black lung. There's an organization, a wonderful organization here in Kentucky called Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, which does a lot of environmental and social justice work throughout the whole state, but based strongly in eastern Kentucky. And they came out with a bumper sticker that that countered Friends of Coal. It said, Friends of Miners and Mountains. Yeah, I like that a lot. I wish I would buy, I that, I would buy that license plate if it were out there, but it's not on a license plate. It's I can only get friends of coal on one, so I mine just says Kentucky. We had to steal the train just to catch a ride. I carried a mountain rifle by my side. Heading for Blair Mountain where we wouldn't fight. To make things better in a miner's life. You've talked about how politicians view Appalachia as a national sacrifice zone in terms of labor. What do you mean by that phrase? And how is coal mining in Appalachia tied to larger questions about the nature of work? The term national sacrifice zone was originally applied to the region itself, not just the labor. And I think it was somebody in the Nixon administration that actually came up with that term, but Appalachian folks have adapted it to their own uses. Hey, we're a sacrifice zone. We need help in fighting off the environmental problems and so on. But but it's also a national sacrifice zone in terms of labor. If you think about, again, the number of fatalities in the mines, the rates of black lung, bodies and souls are are at stake here. As far as the nature of work, 
the employer gets more back than the wages that are put out. Now, who gets those surplus profits? The employer. So the employer appropriates that value, that profit, and makes a decision about where it, gets, where it goes. And so then you got a question of where does it go? How's it distributed? That's why the language of Occupy again, the 1% and the 99% captured something profound about this nature of capitalist work. The value isn't going to the worker. And, and we have all these statistics and maps and charts you know, that show <clears throat> the level of inequality in the United States has now reached the level of the 1920s and before the Depression. Level of wages in this country has been like a steady a big decline and now just a steady leveling off. People aren't getting ahead. One of the things that's kept people functioning is damn credit cards. The alternative for me would be, of course, public sector work. And we'll maybe talk about that when we talk about a Green New Deal. But it's also the alternative is democracy at work. Why shouldn't the people that create all that value, all those profits from goods and services have a say in where do they go. Co-ops are one way that workers have those rights. It's, it's like, you know, we have this funny divide in the United States. We have political democracy, or we call it that, where every four years we, we go and vote on somebody that the Electoral College didn't support. But we don't have that in work. How come the politics is democratic, if it is, but the workplace is not. And one interesting thing about the United Mine Workers, one of the problems with coal mining has always been overproduction. Always had too much coal. And too many companies, especially too many small companies. The leaders in the union recognized this. And like under the leadership of John L. Lewis, pushed to reduce the number of mines and employment. That's unusual when you think about a union moving, being the leader in cutting back on the workforce. But they felt like the future benefits for workers could only be met with a smaller workforce and a better paid workforce. So they extracted from the companies a royalty, uh, originally like maybe 20 cents a ton, I don't know, maybe it's five cents a ton. Every ton mined in a union mine went into a pension and welfare fund to retire miners and to pay for their health care costs. And so Unlike most capitalist work, if you have a strong union, you could have a say in the appropriation and the distribution of those. In this case, they said, look, we're not going to mine your coal if you don't pay into a fund to take care of our sick and disabled families. Eventually, that fund started to really go down as less and less union mines are being operated. It was a short-term fix, but it was very important for the region. But that's an example of intervening in a capitalist workplace situation through a strong union and being able to make claims on that on that surplus on that value that's being produced that's interesting to me because we often think of this region as a kind of backwards place right mm-hmm. and and we hear that rhetoric about the south in general that the south is the the antithesis to the thesis right. of the nation, right? right? And that we can just relegate all of our bad things in the South and the nation can just go on. So I think it's a really interesting point that community-based healthcare is happening. 
Exactly. Labor activism is happening. We can see how coal mining provides a useful template for labor organizing everywhere and for how one can use a collective voice of labor to really change the community for the better. I think you're you're absolutely right there. I think any any time we have a strong union movement, you can um, really better the lives of individuals and the communities that they're in, and hopefully the nature of work that that they're doing. Appalachia, in many ways, has been been a leader, but you're right. It's the other. It's the American other. It's the counterpoint to modernity, urban industrial America. So it's convenient to think about it in terms of the ills that we would like to project onto Appalachia or onto the South. Let's just pretend like racism is just a Southern problem, right? As opposed to a national problem and a national scandal. When we're talking about the otherness of the South or Appalachia, of course, the stereotype of Appalachia, it was the place where time stood still. When I was a boy in high school, I reviewed a book written about my home county. This was one of the things that got me started being a sociologist called Yesterday's People. And as the name implies, Appalachia were yesterday's people, not modern. And it's, it's like the equivalent of the book that just came out by J.D. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy. An equally bad book, but Hillbilly Elegy got a lot more national attention and readership for no good reason at all, except how it was promoted. And one of the, you know, one of the stereotypes back in the book Yesterday's People or in today's Hillbilly Elegy is fatalism. You know, people are just too fatalistic to, to get up and care and do anything. And then we get all the opioid attention. We, you know, that's a real valid problem. But all that tends to portray this passivity and fatalism in the region that just doesn't jive with this history of activism that we're talking about, the ongoing community-based struggles that are very real and very vibrant in the, in the region. So those stereotypes really do a lot of harm. Uh, they became an, an excuse for ignoring the area. Uh, nothing's ever going to change there. Oh, throw federal dollars at them and no improvements will be made. So it's, it's an excuse. It's a cop-out for not confronting the history of exploitation and instead stressing backwardness and poverty and trenched in the region and so on. Not to right. deny the poverty, of course, but let's look at the bigger picture of where that comes from. Clinton said, we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of work. That was the beginning of a sentence that got clipped off, reproduced in, in ads. But she was also saying, but we're going to create these alternatives. People don't trust that, I'm afraid. Uh, I mean, just think back as far as Ronald Reagan saying, when a government worker comes, knocks on your door and says, I'm here to do something for you, Reagan says, run away, slam the door. So, you know, we have built up this antagonism to government. When you look at, like, the Green New Deal talk, it's going to take a lot to sell people to be able to trust again. My father 
was a Social Security district manager in Southern West Virginia. He joined the Social Security Administration shortly after the New Deal. He was a Norman Thomas socialist. He believed that Social Security, and he thought Medicare was just around the corner instead of 30 years later, he thought Social Security was the one step in the democratic road to socialism. Think about all the good that came out of the New Deal. Um, putting people to work, creating jobs, mobilizing the economy. We're facing the same kind of crisis now with fossil fuels and the climate situation. I know you can't blame a hot day on climate change, but we haven't had any rain in Kentucky for more than a month. The default setting on my thermometer in the car seems to be 95 degrees. People feel this. They see the hurricanes. They, they at least read about the melting glaciers and the ice caps. People are worried. And I, I'm a little hopeful because of like the Sunrise Movement and the youth that are demanding action, but it's going to take a really massive and democratic process. I've, I've read the the New Deal, Green New Deal proposals of some of them. The most ambitious is Bernie Sanders, with a price tag of sixteen point three trillion dollars. I mean that sounds incredible, and yet it'll cost us a lot more not to do that. You know, to, to not confront what's happening, sea level rise and climate and agriculture. I mean, it's, we're, look, we're looking at a real crisis here. But to do a just transition away from fossil fuels, you have to take care of the communities and the workforce forces that did all that production for you. Yeah, it's time to, it's time to say we, we can't afford that anymore, but we can't turn our back on those workers and their communities. They're going to need job guarantees. They're going to need not just retraining for some potential job that might or might not be out there. We need to create those jobs. We can create those. If you've driven through the mountains recently, as I know you have, look at the devastation. We could put those mountains back. The same skills that it takes to do surface mining, you can reclaim. You can create jobs in forestry. Forestry jobs make trees. Trees absorb carbon. I mean, there's so much we could be doing to rebuild the region with the great skill that these workers have. But when you've got all these people still in coal and, and especially in fracking, um, you know, they're going to be, of course, skeptical. They've got to they've got to be reassured that it's going to work for them. And uh, it's got to be democratic. I don't, I don't know how you get there. We don't have a lot of time to get there. But it's got to involve a democratic process uh, of a kind we're, you know, we're not used to, whether it's in the workplace or in the, uh, in the national policies. It can be done. A just transition is highly possible. It's just going to take a huge commitment on the nation's part. What do politicians need to do to know? Well, they need to understand local people. They need to involve them. Any of the programs that are being proposed have to involve the people that are affected by it. They have to have a say in this. They have to have a buy-in. Um, we're talking about stereotypes about the region in the Hillbilly Elegy book. The national press picked up on that book and picked up on the Trump campaign in Appalachia. And, you know, it's true. West Virginia, I think, had the highest level of voting in support of Trump of, of any state. 
On the other hand, it's a more complicated picture, like everything about Appalachia is. In Kentucky, uh, in the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders carried all the coal mining counties. In, and there are more Democrats than Republicans, although people vote Republican, you know. But he had more support in the Democratic primary than Trump in the Republican side. But people stayed home. And I think that was the case the turnout in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and, and all, but it, it shows me that there was a an opening for a more progressive candidate, in, in that case Bernie Sanders. Uh, I mean people want change. They, they know what's wrong. They're tired of corrupt local politicians. The governor is the most disliked governor in the United States. Our senator, Mitch McConnell, is the most disliked senator in his home state in the United States and yet nothing seems to change. And so I just, I think you gotta weigh all that with the fact that there really is an, an openness for new directions. And, and communities are struggling with that. That's what the just transition is all about. We just need the, we need the leadership and we need to quit the rhetoric and build confidence throughout the country that we can do these things again. for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the many people who made this episode possible. A huge thank you to Dwight Billings for sitting down with us. Thanks also to the folks at the UK Appalachian Center and especially Catherine Ingle for welcoming us and hosting our conversation. Thanks to Jack Wright for helping us source the music for this episode. Jack is a retired professor of sound and producer of The Music of Coal, a 70-page book and two-CD compilation of old and new music from Southern Appalachian coal fields. Thanks to my family members, James Fee, Carol Fee, Mel Banks, Marlene Banks, and others for hosting me in Hyden, Kentucky. Thanks also to Donald Caldwell for letting me take photos of the mine at Beach Fork. Last but not least, thanks to William Verhen for sponsoring the travel for this episode. On behalf of the Appalachian Center, I would like to invite you to the 2020 Appalachian Studies Association Conference at UK in March. This conference has over a thousand expected participants, including academics, teachers, musicians, community leaders, and activists. If you were interested in this episode, we hope you'll be able to attend. About South is brought to you this week from Hyden, Kentucky. This episode was produced by me, Kelly Vines. Gina Kaysen and Adwa Danzo are my co-producers. Jessica Parker joins us this season as an assistant producer. This week, you heard music from the Edison Concert Band, Sandy Shortridge and Ron Short, Florence Reese and Natalie Merchant. Our regular theme music is by Brian Horton. You can find him at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at aboutsouthpod. Until next time... Be kind 
and remember which side you're on.